Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Treehouse, episode 39, The Fretful Porpentine, with Danny Baker and me, Louise Pepper. Very good morning to you, everybody. A very good morning to, of course, Louise Napoleon Pepper on the other side of town, but as always, chiefly yourselves. And um, you may notice the brisk way I've started this one. Yeah. Because... You've got um, somewhere to be? No, I don't have anywhere to be. And I wish that we could all say the same. Oh, actually, sorry, we can. <laughs> anyway, but it's... As you know, I, 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 I get up at 4.30am, mm. go for my run, and then I come back to find if there's anything, anything out on the... Uh, uh, on this day anniversaries that will be overlooked by what I like to call the lamestream media. And um, so the, today I went to my usual sites and it was just overwhelming. Oh. And within, I'd looked at two of you know, the first page and I thought, well, that's it. So this, there was literally was swamped by stuff. Some of the minor things, um, it's George Arliss's birthday. Did, did I tell you this, um, George Arliss? He's not the cricket fella, is he? No, I don't know if they were related. But anyway, George Arliss, George Arliss uh, was uh, uh, voted the most popular movie entertainer of 1934 by the British public. When he was already 66, he was a very austere, always severe-looking, bemonicled actor who in the early part of the last century was... But what he owes to popular culture is what we're coming to. I've literally never heard of him. George Arliss, well, you know... He, it's like like he was the Daniel Radcliffe of his day, if you like. And anyone who knows what George Arliss looks like knows what a stretch that is. By the way, if you've never heard the uh, show before, hang in there because these usually come around to have some kind of um, modern meaning. Not that they need it. George Arliss, uh, he was a very famous actor, but, and I can't help but feel partially responsible for this, he was one of the few um, impressions that Tony Hancock did. Tony oh. Hancock, when he tried his stage show, and uh, when he was famously not very happy, and you, you can see it online, he played a Royal Festival Hall when he wasn't a gifted stand-up, but he went back to try and uh, uh, start his career again as a performer. And he would do um, uh, Charles Lawson in Mutiny on the Bounty, of which more in a moment, perhaps. I'm sorry, I know these monologues sometimes get tangled. But he would do, Mr. Christian, he would do that. <laughs> and then he would form... Uh, almost like the OK sign, he would form a circle with his index finger and thumb, put it in his eye, as it, like a monocle, turn round, pull his face in the famous uh, grimace that George Arliss used, and say to the audience, George Arliss. Now, in 1966, that was an archaic reference, right? A really archaic reference. And Tony Hancock then said, there's one for the teenagers. Oh! And, that, and I used to, because I, I loved that phrase, I used to use it on 606 and other shows I did, and now I notice it's pretty common again. One for the teenagers was Tony Hancock's impression of George Arliss. Now, do you understand why the notes here are copious? Because that is that um, it's up to you. I'll give you. I'll murder my darlings here. Do you want more about the mutiny on the bounty, or um, or the, the, the history of waxworks? <laughs> oh, <laughs> because, because uh... the first waxwork. We may come back to one of them. You just choose one now. The 
uh, waxworks. Well, the first waxworks. Thank you. The first waxworks. And don't worry about Marie Tussauds. That a revist. I found it. She's in a revist. They grew. Start the show any second now, everyone. We've got, because the emails are strong. Mm. Uh, very strong. Um, but they, uh, they grew at a royal funerals. Waxworks, perhaps royal funerals. Because, <laughs> yeah. It was the, it was the, I know it's a stretch, isn't it? But it was the custom to always put the dead monarch on top of the coffin as it was paraded around the streets, you see. No, so, right. Yeah. So instead of the real body. <laughs> the real body, dressed oh. in real clothes. And, but they found, um, yes, exactly, that facial pulling. They found that certainly when, you know, the weather was warm, you know, that they were, everybody, oh. they were making their own gravy. And uh, anyway, so, uh, walking around the street. So what they did, they started making effigies of just the face and hands, putting them in clothes, and that replaced it. I think um, uh, Edward III in 1377, I've written it down, was uh, one of the first to be waxed, if you will. And uh, and so, and then, and then afterwards, they would get the head and hands and the public could come and see them. Cues <laughs> <laughs> were around the block. Cues were around the block. So that, much in so 1377, how does word spread? What more than that? You could stand on your roof with a rolled-up scroll and hit everyone. That's how few people there were around. I'm going to see the head of Edward the for open of nine, folks. Uh, and you know, remember to keep your distance. So that's what they would do. And uh, uh, and and then they would, Westminster Abbey started charging, huge. And then Lord Nelson died, and they buried him in St Paul's. And huge queues of St Paul's, and there was actually a rivalry between St Paul's and Westminster to get the best waxworks. <laughs> I know I'm sitting reading this this morning. The show starts in a second, uh, uh, and, and, and then uh, there was uh, Mary's waxworks of the ro- moving waxworks at Royal Court of England opened in Fleet Street. She did clockwork waxworks. Have you been? What? Yeah, when was this? That was in uh, uh, 1711. Clockwork waxworks. That's not we think we're show. so modern. Uh, we do, uh, and they, the queues are going around a bit. It was a smash, a smash, uh, and and then over in France because they came in on the gag. Uh, Philip Courtius did the Gallery of Great Thieves. He said it shouldn't always be the highborn, so we'll do the lowborn. That gave way to the Chamber of Horrors, and that was it. Uh, he and when he died, Courtius, he left his collection, he inherited his uh, waxwork museum to a certain Marie Tussauds. She inherited it. I oh, know. Marie inherited. She was just it. good at marketing. That's all she was. Ding. That's it. He was. She was his protege. But he said, "Go on, you can have them all when I've gone." Uh, mm, 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 I don't know the French for that, but basically that's what he said, and 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 that's how she got going. Just on this, the first waxworks in India opened in 2005. It was what? Huge. Yes, 2005 um, in Kolkata. Uh, uh, it was uh, uh, the first one was opened, and then they opened a bigger one. In, called Mother's Wax Museum in 2014, and it's a smash. They've never seen anything like They've been there. deprived for the three centuries <laughs> and more. Try seven. Try yeah. seven. Uh, and and so in Kolkata it is. And just last thing, I promise you, everyone. I looked up. It's called Mother's Wax Museum in honour of Mother Teresa. <laughs> We'll call it not Teresa's Wax Museum. It was uh, in the best way to honour her memory, but... Mother's okay. Wax Museum. And it's uh, it says it's the wonder of the age and come and be startled and here we lift the veil you will be in the presence of. I looked at all the bumps and then I looked at the address of Mother's Wax Museum 
And the address of Mother's Wax Museum, one of the biggest tourist attractions in Kolkata these days, is fifth and sixth floors of the West Bengal Housing Infrastructure Development Department. That doesn't, that's got no music in it to me. No music. Uh, anyway, there's your waxworks and there's your George Arliss. Have you ever been to a clairvoyant, Peps? Or, or uh, a, a fortune teller? Um... No. A couple of my friends did at South End Pier and yeah. I chickened out, yeah. Yes, I, I, I don't... Yeah. I, I, I simultaneously think it's a, a load of hooey and yet I don't want to know. Yes! <laughs> it's plainly hooey, uh, uh, but, but, but I don't want to know. Yeah. And m- maybe uh, as the show now hoves into view, we can have the very first subject, which is uh, about everyone out there. Been to a clairvoyant? Been to a, a fortune teller, um, so we'll see what we get out of that. What are we doing today, Peps? Well, on top of that, we've got soaking a stranger, astounding examples of good luck, moving something really heavy, tales of taping something and videotapes, and what have you stolen? Yes, you. Uh, and here we go again then with another three hours of fun for old and young without the slightest hint of vulgarity. Uh, give us something you've got over there, perhaps that people have been this, good enough to send. This is stolen goods uh-huh. from Dan, stra- straight in. Mm-hmm. I used to have a regular scam going at the local co-op as a 10-year-old. I would stash packets of Cadbury's eclairs, as in the toffees, up my jacket sleeve because the packets being long and cylindrical means you could slip three or four of them up there. Then, to be really brazen, I'd swagger up to the counter steadily so as not to prolapse an eclair out of my arm and buy something (laughs) cheap like a packet of polos. It all went horribly wrong when one day the local bad lad, Lee Harrison, collared me in the shop and for a laugh, without knowing about my scam, started screaming I was nicking stuff and that the staff should frisk me. I had to nervously approach the counter, ashen-faced, to buy the polos, all the time being heckled by Lee with eclairs like a ton weight up my sleeve and the staff eyeing me coldly. I never stole anything from the co-op again and Lee went to prison. No, went and went later on, went on to Nick. Let me ask you to hear, Peps, and, and I've got a couple of these myself. Ever stolen anything? Come on, this is amnesty. Um, I have in, the power to, to give amnesty. Not in a purposeful way. Oh, I, I have to, I, uh, when Wilbur was quite newly born, I went round the shops and would put things on top of the pram while I was walking around the shops and then walk out the shops and go home and go, oh, there's two cakes and a packet of pork pies here. Oh, really? Oh, really? This, but, is, um, like, this is only a couple of years ago. Come on, Isabel Barnett. Fess up. You meant it, didn't you? By the way, that may be the most esoteric reference, I think, even by the show standards. But um, uh, so uh, you, you walked out of Mother Care. Is that why they went skin? Mother Care went skin yeah, that's... six months later. Well, no, it wasn't Mother Care. It was, it was pork pies, so it must have been Sainsbury's. But Well, well it's, um... in, it's, in, it's in my first book. I was a version therapist. And anyway, again, cautionary tales can uh, are always welcome. I was a version therapist off of uh, a life of crime, I believe, at the age of six, when, uh, as, as November the 5th was hoving round, me and a few of my friends decided to go to Eric's, the greengrocers, on Rotherhive New Road and steal a potato each to throw into the uh, fire we had going. It wasn't a bonfire, just a fire we had going on the dump. You nick a potato and you could throw it in the fire. Uh, so uh, we all went in there and Eric wasn't around. Eric weren't there. There was no one. It was just a little uh, sort of uh, stall come shop on Rotherhive New Road. And so my mates went, where do you think he's gone? I said, I don't know. And, and I got a potato ready to take away and I, but I'm six remember I took it from the bottom of the stack <laughs> avalanche right <laughs> it, fell, 
It sounded like a Ginger Baker solo all of a sudden. My mates all ran out and I turned and who's hovering over me? Eric himself. What are you doing? He knew me. What are you doing? Danny, you're putting that in your pocket. And I was attempting to put it in my pocket as I looked at him. And I said, no, I was I was polishing it. That's what ah! I said, Peps. I said I was polishing it. I promise you. Now, you weren't, were you? Now, I told your mum at which point I burst into such tears, I ran out of the shop straight into a post box. <laughs> and that is why I ne- I didn't end up as rattles. Like Jack so Tati or something. And, 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 so oh. that, about that, huh? Okay, here's um, well, the moment of crime and punishment. Here's a story about unusual school punishments. It's been sent to us by Colin. Got a great one from Joe coming up. Joe, I'm saving yours to the end. Uh, she, she, anyway, we'll get to Joe in a second. It says, uh, this is uh, the subject. Did this only happen at your school? And I like this. He went, I went to a Catholic primary school in the mid-1960s. Most of the teaching staff were nuns, and the headmistress was a ferocious item named Sister Anselm. Oh. Yeah. The usual 60s forms of discipline were in place, but Sister Anselm had a particularly interesting one for the most heinous of crimes, like fighting at the bus stop or swearing. For example, at morning assembly, after the usual offices were attended to, she would demand silence, then in a thunderous voice call out for an example. James Flaherty, she might say, come up here by the stage. James would shuffle up, he'd bend over without request and get six of the best but this was the least of his problems. He would then be ordered to go to the cloakroom and bring me a girl's hat. We were a mixed school, and off he'd trudge, because he'd come back with a hat, which was either a blue velvet bonnet, autumn winter, or a natty straw boater with a red and green band, spring or summer. The hat would then be firmly placed on his head by Sister Anselm. The elastic string snapped under his chin with a terrible finality, and he would be dismissed. The hat had to stay on all through the day, with no exceptions. If he was found bareheaded, he'd get another six strokes and another hat. Similar uh, rules apply to the girls, but that was a boy's cap and red and green quarters. Quite smart. Six smacks on the hand with the ruler was their thing. Cruel and unusual. Well, it kept me on the straight and narrow. Chiefly the hat part, I think. And that's from Colin. Now, that, that's a lot of people were probably saying, oh, how terrible. Well, uh, uh, well it was creative. It, you know, having to walk around in a fancy hat all day, a boater. You would have been grandstanding for the crowd. (laughs) As soon as she snapped it on my head, I would have taken my index finger and just put it at that angle. (laughs) I think think that's better, don't you, Anselm? What did you call me? (laughs) Anyway, uh, that's that's from our friend Colin. Something else, perhaps? Uh, This is from... Oh, gosh, where have I put it? It's another budgie story. Budgies are strong. (laughs) No, Barry Cry will enjoy a lot of these anyway. (laughs) When my grandmother died in the... This is from John. When my grandmother died in the early 60s, my mum reluctantly took on the budgie. Oh, do you know what? She hasn't told, he hasn't given us the budgie's name, which is a, which is a Joey. Why'd you be called Joey? Oh, Joey, yeah. Joey. Nan had a colourful vocabulary, so the four of us were in the family were instructed to keep repeating innocuous phrases until the bird was re-educated. This was successful, but a couple of months later, when we assembled for family dinner, my mum, looking more stern than we'd ever seen her, said, Who's taught the budgie to swear? Apparently it was a common expletive and the three of us vehemently denied having taught it. A few days later, equally stern-faced, Mum sat down to dinner and said, I owe you all an apology. 
Mum didn't work and her routine was to have lunch in the dining room where the budgie spent its morning and then would retire to the sitting room to watch the TV and took the cage with her so that it could sit on a small table. At this time, the TV was temperamental and after being switched on for a minute or two, the picture would break up. And of course, the only remedy is to get up and give the telly a whack. Mm. On this day as usual, Mum had carried the cage through to the sitting room, settled into her armchair ready for it to snooze whilst pretending to watch ta- daytime tosh. And after a minute, again, the picture started jumping about. Just Mum? The idea, sorry, Pep, the idea that... And now on ITV, it's a more daytime tosh. <laughs> Here on Daytime Tosh, we've got the Daytime Tosh. Sorry, Pep, go on. Mum, realising she had now done this for many days, said, bugger it, as she got up to give the TV a whack. Just bugger it, she said. <laughs> I had a moment there where I wasn't sure if we were, we were allowed to do it. Regards, John. So so there, you, there you are. We are trained in, in, in some ways. I mean, um, uh, the uh, uh, the more um, forceful word for rear end turned up in one of these uh, podcasts, in one of these uh, emails, and I thought, I, I don't know if after all these years I can, I can say it on the air. I may have to go for the donkey option. Uh, this is um, uh, a tremendous email, it's, 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 and it really is. This is unbelievable. This is from Karen. Thank you very much indeed, Karen. This is on the uh, subject of extraordinary slices of luck great moments of good fortune and it begins as you can imagine with uh, your heart in your mouth because she says my engagement ring is from the 1920s a diamond with sapphires set in platinum the diamond is cut in such a way it would be really hard to replace because according to the antique dealer we bought it from they don't make them like this anymore and haven't for some time. It's so lovely, but it needs care because it's old and occasionally the stones get loose and I have to take them to be tightened up. I teach preschool music and movement classes and one Monday morning, I took my older girl to school, drove my little one to preschool, drove to the church hall where I teach, ran classes all morning, packed up my tambourines and triangles into the car. Then I drove into town, parked up, browsed in several shops, did a bit of supermarket shopping, drove home, opened the front door and looked down. The diamond from my ring was gone. It had fallen out of the setting. Approximately four millimetres wide, I thought back to all the places I'd been that morning and assessed my chances of finding the stone as absolute zero. It was smaller than a pea, and after I checked in the car and the drive, I said to my husband, there's no point, is there, going back? There's no point. What's the point of going back? I'm not going to find it. He said, just try some of the places. What? No, there is no point, I kept telling him. Go back to the church or have a look there. That's where you spent most of the morning. Wearily, I got back in the car and returned to the Quaker church. It's remembering that one of the underpinning values of the Quaker religion is to live simply. So my swanning in there with large sunglasses and a fake fur coat declaring loudly, I'm looking for a vintage diamond. It's fallen from here, points to empty ring casing. That felt somewhat grandstanding, but I ploughed on regardless. The room I teach in has lovely big floor to ceiling windows on two sides. It was a sunny day. And as I walked in the room, unbelievably, in the very centre, in a shaft of sunlight, was the diamond, (gasps) sitting in the middle of the floor. It was though the sun was actually pointing out my stone, lighting the way. I could not believe it. I mean, what are the chances? It could have fallen out anywhere in the car park where the gravel is or any of the other stops, but no. And there it was in the middle of the floor with a sunbeam picking it out. I felt like the luckiest woman alive. Now, there's a second part to that, which we will come to, uh, when she, a few days later, has an equal stroke of luck. But how about that? How about that? 
You just think we're not just looking here. Picked out. I know that is an extraordinary slice of luck. I, I left my video camera. <laughs> so engagement ring years ago when video cameras were novel. Um, and it was one that you, you could hold in one hand. And I left it in uh, Bloomingdale's, I, I, I assume. Uh, several hours later in a cab, I said, my camera. And we said, you always, I said, oh, my camera, my camera is in the cab. We didn't know. Where would we? We've got to go back to Bloomingdale's to pick stuff up. And I went back to Bloomingdale's, not even looking really for the camera, just to just, just to pick up the bags we'd left there. Didn't want to traipse around with them, perhaps. And I got in the lift. And there, on on the kind of shelf in the lift where I put it down, was my camera. The same lift, I promise you. The same lift that had been going up and down, up and down between floors for about three hours since we were there. And it was still there, just sitting on the side. (laughs) I just left it there, got and had lunch, walked around, come back. I didn't even have anyone to thank. People must know some camera just was going up and down. No one had picked it up and... Don't talk to me about diamond rings. Uh, one more quick one, Peps, and we'll do some adverts. Uh, this is from Peter. He says, I'm having two bites at the cherry. Firstly, about my name. About 15 years ago, I was reading The Client by John Grisham, and I was taken aback when a character appeared with my name, Peter Corsa. Now, while my name's not especially special, it's not very common, and I got out of bed and told a singly unimpressed and now former Mrs Corsa about it. Mm. About a year later, walking past the bookshelf, I picked the book up and looked for my name twin. I couldn't find it. As I recalled, he was a courier or legal secretary delivering papers. I ended up all but rereading the book with no joy. And I'm embarrassed to admit, I've since bought a couple more copies of the book that I, when I've seen it in charity <laughs> shops. He's still elusive. I wasn't drunk. I wasn't sleepwalking. I can remember seeing and reading it and being surprised. But he has never reappeared in the book. Oh, that, uh, imagine that, that's phantasmagoria. That, uh, that's, uh, that's worth its own exhibit. Uh, 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 what was her name? Uh, uh, Mother's Wax Museum in Calcutta <laughs> on the fifth and sixth floor. Before we vanish, and I apologise for being so ebullient today, but while we're here, uh, you know my Mel Brooks story? Uh, I have several, but um, when I interviewed Mel Brooks in... 19- oh, your name! Yeah, uh, and, uh, and I thought, oh, you know, it'd be just another press interview. Ended up bonding with him, because I sat down and his manager said, Mel... Uh, it's your first interview today. This is Danny Baker. And he stood up, spun round on his heel. This is in the Claridge's Hotel uh, restaurant. Wow, you're Danny Baker? I said, yeah. He said, you really are? I said, yeah, you are? You're a Danny Baker? And he went on and on and on. Because, as you know, and probably most of the audience, it doesn't matter. It's still a good name story. Turns out the very first thing he wrote for television was called The Private Life of Danny Baker because he couldn't think of a less Jewish name, he told me. And if you look, <laughs> it's online now and it's everywhere. And what are the... And after that, you've got to come around museums with me. And we hung around for about two or three days. Now, there are some absolute pips there. As I say, there's a, mm. another one from Karen. There's uh, Jo. She's got a terrific story about Disney. And I know you have. Uh, so we'll do these advert peps, and then we'll be back in Stanta. Also from something else. Mel Gedroich is quilting. Listen to Mel and good friend Andy Bush as they learn a great new skill and tell some brilliant stories, all whilst having some good, wholesome fun. In a nutshell, I took a pair of scissors and I went into my husband's wardrobe. Now, this comes from a shirt that I bought him that I know he doesn't like. So I'm testing him by... (laughs) Uh, uh, This is brilliant. Yeah, by finding out... 
when he discovers Amazing. that the shirt has got a big patch out of the back of it. Wow, and which area of the shirt is this taken from? Bottom right. OK. <laughs> Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. Good morning, everybody. It's the Danny Baker Show. Radiating out across the airwaves. Come the sunshine or the rain, come aboard the Danny train. We'll kick our slippers off and throw our cares away. What better thing to do than have a jolly jape or two? Don't touch that dial, there's nowhere else to go. Come and join a happy session, wave ta-ta to the recession on the Danny Baker Show. Take it away, Danny. And we're back again, and even in the in not that we weren't hanging on every word of our uh, sponsors and stuff. There, uh, uh, we, we, we were even coming up with more more stuff. We may have to do this every morning. We may not broadcast it, but me and Peps uh, and Phil Wilding might have to get together just to chat. Uh, so uh, straight into it, Peps, because we are getting so behind with a fantastic. And I mean that, not in a patronising way, uh, but the, the the emails are of a, such a standard. And because Peps and I just yak, we don't get round to them. Give us something, Peps. Well, this is from Rob, who um, describes himself as bored in lockdown. And I think it will become clear from his email, which bears no relevance to any of the topics as to, to how bored he is. Just a caveat there. You can listen to the show for its own sake, you know. You don't have to tell us, I'm at my wit's end here. I've started listening to you. <laughs> I've been pummeled into submission. I might as well listen to that. You don't always have to preface it. I'm so bored, I've been listening to your show. <laughs> Oh, no, no. It's I more It's no, more no. he's done. It's so, what? Okay. He says, catching up with the podcast, I've just listened to your discussion of Micronesia. Mm. Following standard SI scientific prefixes, the order should actually be as follows, heading down in size. Ladies and gentlemen. Oh, yeah, uh, yes. We Ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Phil, play the posh music now. And here we go. Nisia. Dekinesia. Centinesia. Melanesia, Micronesia, oh. Nanonesia, <laughs> Piconesia, Femtonesia, and onwards all the way down to Yoctonesia. Yoctonesia? Yoctonesia. I, 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 I would have gone through the whole list, but there you go. Well, he then goes the other way. Mm-hmm. Nesia, mm-hmm. Decanesia, Hectonesia, Kilonesia, Meganesia. Well, this isn't champagne bottles you're doing here. <laughs> Giganesia, and onwards, again, he's let you down a little here, all the way up to Yotanesia. Is there? We have the extremes of Yoctonesia and Yotanesia. Yeah, here's the thing. I mean, this is the curse of content, uh, which most shows (laughs) respond in a different way to. But I was going to tell you about Mutiny on the Bounty uh, earlier on. Oh, yes. You know, and today's the uh, uh, day it happened in history. They were actually shipping breadfruit. Breadfruit. That, that, that was the. That's all they had on board. Breadfruit. It still exist. Breadfruit from. I don't. I think it does. Doesn't it look like a melon? A breadfruit. I think it does. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a breadfruit from. They were going from Tahiti to the West Indies with their breadfruit when uh, Captain Bly and his men. By the way, Captain Bly was set, uh, set adrift in a rowboat with eighteen yes. other officers. They rowed or they navigated three and a half thousand miles to reach safety. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to, you know, people quite rightly in some cases poo-poo the old men of the empire, but <laughs> right. Put your, That's a good oars work. Put your index finger in the wind. That way, gentlemen, three and a half thousand miles. That's what they did. But as you know, they 
the, the actual uh, mutineers stayed on the Pitcairn Islands and the Norfolk Islands. And to this day, most of the people there are their descendants. But when ah. I say most of the people there, they are, yeah, they, they've all, there's only about four surnames on the entire uh, archipelago. Uh, but the, uh, the Pitcairn Islands, which are Pitcairn, Henderson, Ducey and Awano, uh, they are the four Pitcairn Islands. How many people do you think these days today live on the Pitcairn Islands? How many? Uh, uh, five thousand. Uh, cut that by ten. Four thousand and nine hundred ninety. No. Cut that by ten. Fifty people. Only fifty no. is the least populous place on earth. The smallest democracy in the world. There are just fifty people left in the Pitcairn Islands. The most they ever had was two hundred thirty-three in nineteen thirty-seven. Uh, and the, the, there was no indigenous people when they went there. The Polynesians didn't want the Pitcairns. And <laughs> they gave the vote to women in the 1840s. Uh, 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 well, they were ahead of, where is it, Switzerland that was really late? Oh, 71, it? Switzerland. Uh, Same-sex marriages uh, since 2015, but no people on the islands are known to have entered into such a relationship. It's only 50 of them, to be fair. Uh, and the uh, farming is the industry. Now, I just want to read this. There's plenty. There's one electrician on the islands, by the way. Uh, and uh, he's, he's in the money. He's, he's 71 years old, right? And he, uh, he's been there always, but he's, once he's gone, they don't know what to do. There is no radio station. Oh, oh, oh. hello. Oh, I know. And how about this? Their main and if, you train, if I train up as a sparky in, in, in this lockdown, then, I'd double whammy. Boom. The pick, they're always asking people to go there, but nobody wants to live there, even though, listen to this, and this is uh, verbatim from, I know we've got loads to do, uh, from the Wikipedia on the Pitcairn Islands. Uh, the, the fertile, we need some really nice paradise music behind this, or perhaps crushing waves. The fertile soil of the Pitcairn Islands, such as Isaac's Valley on the gentle slope southeast of Adamstown, produces a wide variety of fruits, including bananas, papaya, Pineapples, mangoes, watermelons, cantaloupes, passion fruit, breadfruit, coconuts, avocado, mandarins, grapefruits, lemons, and limes. There's also sugarcane and arrowroot to be harvested, and molasses. Pitcairn Island is a remarkably productive and benign climate. It supports a range of tropical and temperate crops. Fish are plentiful in the seas. Spiny lobsters, large varieties of fish are caught for meals or traded with passing ships. Almost every day someone goes fishing, whether it's from the rocks or a longboat or diving with a spear. There are numerous types of fish on the island. The nanwi, the whitefish, the moi, the opapa, the yellowtail and wahoo. Fishing and swimming are two popular, popular recreation activities. A birthday celebration or the arrival of a ship or yacht will involve the entire Pitcairn community in a public dinner in the square in Adamstown. Tables are covered with a variety of food, fish, meat, chicken, baked rice and boiled bananas. It is a place where absolutely everyone attends for a dessert of pineapple and watermelon. And nobody wants to go and live there. I'm there. No, exactly. Exotic fruit, lobster... And, and uh, lunch and, with all the town in the big square? Yes, please. Uh, uh, no radio stations. We can get after that. They do have television, but they can only pick up two stations at a time on the satellite, and they revolve these stations. <laughs> they revolve the stations around. Anyway, uh, they're, 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 we've seen, again, having said we're knuckled out to emails, gone in that direction. Uh, something else, perhaps. What you got there? Well, this is uh, from uh, Jimmy. Mm-hmm. My oldest scar. He sent this in quite a while ago, but it's been sitting here in the pile. In the summer of 1991, when I was about 10, I made what turned out to be a fateful decision of partaking in a rite of passage that was seemingly obligatory, i.e. car washing. 
On an ordinary Saturday, I scavenge various cleaning implements, chuck them in a bucket and set off with a trio with my cousins. <laughs> he says the second one technically wasn't a cousin, but a relative, but the son of my dad's best friend and then was accorded the title of cousin. We all have those, don't we? Yeah. Off the three of us went around the streets of Deptford, knocking on doors and asking locals if they needed their car washing. Uh-oh. But the memory of the actual car washing has been swallowed up by what happened afterwards. Retiring to what was then the old Brookmill Park, the three of us wasted the summer Saturday afternoon the way that kids do, i.e. climbing on the roof of a weird old shack building that was in the middle of the park. I know it. No sooner had I climbed up on the roof in the wake of my cousins than I was falling off, said Ruth. Despite desperate efforts to cling on to the edge of corrugated iron, I was doomed plummeting six foot onto the grass, landing on my knees, whereupon the concrete step gave me the cleanest uppercut I have ever seen. Thunk. Two decades later, I can still remember that sound. A blood-curdling cry of shock and pain as heard as far as Greenwich. And as blood gushed from my mouth, my cousin removed his brand-new pristine white Hero Turtles T-shirt and handed it to me to staunch the flow. Realising we couldn't, we went back to my nan's house, which was nearest and probably where all my family was being a Saturday. On closer inspection, it was determined I had a badly cut lip and chipped front teeth, which now had an arch rather than a usual gap. Oh. They decided that perhaps all I needed was a plaster, but I was then... (laughs) (laughs) And I was eventually taken to the dental emergency ward at Guy's Hospital, and the missing parts of my front teeth were found in my bottom lip. Oh, for the love oh. of God. How did he get through that? I will, I, will, I will gloss over the following paragraph. Yes, please do. Hello, look, I'm uh, sitting here with my hands clenched yeah. under, like I'm freezing under my arms. So armpit. his scar is an unnaturally dimpled lip now. Mm-mm. It says, But let us all spare a thought for my cousin's mother, who came home that afternoon and found no trace of her son except for his heavily blood-stained Hero Turtles T-shirt. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, man. Being 1991 and no mobile phones, I can only imagine the emotions she went through and the scenarios she was imagining until she'd rung round a few people and found out what had happened. And you're relieved. Poor old <laughs> the other fellas got you know, he's well, goofy, but uh, nevertheless, oh. uh, that was a beautiful kick in the end there because I just thought it was going to be a, a parade of horrors. <laughs> uh, this this is a kind of a, a antidote. This is uh, from our friend Joe. He says, uh, this, is, "This is apropos, I think, names and that." He says, mm. "My name is Joe Norris." You're probably not uncommon for a boys to be called John, uh, Joe Norris or even to fall in love with their babysitter, because I did. The daughter of my parents' friends used to come and look after me and my brother. She was 16, really nice, absolutely beautiful. My eight-year-old self was smitten. Years later, I couldn't help but be disappointed when my parents told me they'd been invited to her wedding, meaning she would never be mine. But worse was to come. She was marrying a man called Joe Morris. I'm Joe Norris, remember? Norris with an M, and she was marrying Morris with an M. Still, at the back of my mind, I always jokingly imagined if we ever did meet again, I would joke with her that she married the wrong Joe, and she would laugh, and she would then realise I was right. She had married the wrong one, and we would live happily ever after. Then came to pass recently a night out. I wasn't sure if it was her at first. I hadn't seen her in about 20 years. So I tentatively approached and said, Excuse me, is your name Rachel? Yes, she said. And then, as her eyes looked into mine, her eyes lit up. Oh, my God. I babysitted you. Yeah. You're Paul, aren't you? 
No, Paul is my brother. I suppose it was never meant to be. Joe Norris oh. with an N. I know. <laughs> I, was I thought so we were... <laughs> I thought here we go. Nah, nah. It was the older brother. She. Uh... <laughs> oh yeah, Lord. Oh Lord Joe, how are you doing? That's not how we saw it. Oh. In... Yeah. But Joe Morris, she married, and he's Joe Norris. That does seem to me like that sliding doors. Something from you, Peps. This is from uh, Sean King. This is about um, lines in school, being given lines. In the 1970s, we had a Latin teacher called Mr Barnett. When he wasn't making us reenact gladiatorial duels using a window pole and a blackout blind in, <laughs> in place of a net and trident, he devised ingenious punishments for forgetting books, missing homework and other misdemeanours. The usual sanction at our school for such crimes was a pink paper, a pinky, which was handed down in the usual form of four sides of pink paper with I must not forget, etc. However, Mr Barnett devised his own version of hard labour in the form of a standard sentence. If, for example, you left your books at home, he would lean back in his chair, gaze up at the window and dictate a very complicated sentence. One like... It is the matter of the utmost importance that, under no conceivable circumstances whatsoever, should I forget or neglect to bring, convey, transport or otherwise guarantee the presence of my textbooks, exercise books, dictionary and any pens, pens, pencils, paper or other stationery connected with my studies to every class on every occasion, thereby ensuring that I am able to participate fully in all lessons devoted to the study of the letters, manuscripts and monographs of Tacitus, Pliny the Younger and other scholars, authors and scribes. Superb. Depending Superb. on the severity or any previous form, you'd get between 50 to 100 of those. Bravo, sir. Bravo. Years later, I realised that actually he was encouraging us to get to grips with putting long sentences together and uses clauses and subclauses. However, it still hurt when he tore them up once yeah. you handed them in. That's what they did. I think I mentioned once, I, I used to do this oh. gag when, uh, when the final bell went at four o'clock and we all had to close our desk and do two kind of military steps into the aisle between the desks and then he would say you can go now and we all made it to the door my desk was nearest the door at West Greenwich and when we did that one night uh, I thought this would be funny I'll make it I can't open the door and everyone piled up behind me right there was this kind of <laughs> huge I can't open the door and I did it for about three nights running and he said Mr Bullock come back everyone sit down and he said to me you have to do it I've seen it that's no accident you did it he said right I want a uh, 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 thousand words on doors by the morning I said, oh, okay. So went home. I wrote perhaps 3,000 words. And <laughs> I, of course I did. The audience are not surprised. And I handed it to him, and it was pretty ripe stuff as well. And he just tore it up and threw it in the bin without looking. Oh. I suspect, I suspect he went and, and stuck that back together again. But he thought, oh, what a crafty old son. I wonder what he said, because there were some good gags in there. <laughs> oh, I pulled some pretty good stuff. Uh, here's another one where subject, which of course is uh, soaking a stranger. This is from Mick. Oh, yes. I went about 15 years ago. I was invited to a barbecue with my girlfriend. As this was a kind of barbecue where I'd know nobody, I dragged my newly single mate along with the promise of free meat and the potential to meet girls. Hang on, he went with his girlfriend. What do you mean he had to take a mate with him? What's wrong? What's wrong with talking? What's wrong with talking to the partner for three hours? Uh, anyway, he took his mate along. I was chatting my, with my girlfriend Katie when I attempted to put some ketchup on a plate. I stood up, I squeezed the bottle at a 45 degree angle, but massively overshot the plate and put a line of ketchup all the way down a Canadian lady's white trousers. 
My reaction didn't help. I just burst out laughing and tried to apologize, but couldn't get it out as I was laughing too much. She was very unhappy and went to try to repair the damage. Now, my friend I took along stirred the pot at this point. He sought her out and told her he did that deliberately. He said he was going to do it to get a laugh. You should get your own back. You should get him now, he said. The rest of the afternoon was a cat and mouse affair as she stalked me menacingly around the garden with a bottle of ketchup, desperately to accidentally catch up me. However, I was too quick for her. It was some afternoon, but I got out unscathed. I was too clever for her. Now that's, that, that's right on the edge wow. of the stuff. That was a beautiful tale. He got invited to a barbecue. He wasn't invited to, and, the, and, and he yep. took his revenge on his pal. He took your revenge on his pal, and he... Uh, he he said he did that on purpose. That's a great thing to do to your friend. He did that on purpose. Something from you, Pet. Well, no, that's just reminded... My mum reminded me the week when you sent the things out of when I was a kid, we used to go on holiday, uh, about five or six families, we'd all go on holiday together, uh, you know, to Spain and France and everywhere. Hmm. And um, my parents' friend Paddy is a great raconteur, tells a, a good sort of shaggy dog story and, yeah. and quite often one with, you know, props and all sorts. And uh, we were all sat in the bar in this hotel in Marbella and he told this very long, complicated story. The punchline of which was to throw the ice bucket of icy water <laughs> over our friend Graham. Hmm. Missed Graham or Graham Dutt. I can't remember. I was only about six or seven at the time. And thoroughly soaked the very dour Spanish man at the next table. Head to toe, <laughs> bucket of iced water oh, real, they had to buy that family's drinks for the whole oh, of the right, rest of course i don't again uh, uh, you know people can <laughs> this is like me and pep's but i wish now my dad had gone he did that on purpose did that on purpose i'll get him before the end the evening's out i just now recall sit being about uh 12 and i used to belong to the national film theater i used to go up there and see films there, me and tommy hodges uh, and i remember sitting in their calf and they, uh, we, we had a cup of coffee each, me and Tom, and there was one of those bowls in front of us because we couldn't see milk, and it was those little pots of UHT, you know, the little mm. plastic pots. And so I got the little plastic... It's actually, it's, it's, I got the little plastic pot, but I couldn't get the lid off of it. I couldn't get the lid. So I put my teeth to it to try and do it, but I gripped the pot too much and it went... and exploded, and I promise I looked up and a fellow sitting opposite, just like in a film, was looking at me with the milk just dripping off his nose. <laughs> and he just held that look while the milk just... He had glasses on, I promise you, and it looked like in a film. It just went... <laughs> it shot out the bottom of the pot all over him. I just remembered that as you said that. Is a... <laughs> Uh, just a couple more. No, sorry mm. for uh, uh, indulging, but here we go. Uh, this is from Kev. Oh, this is lovely. This is um, Extraordinary Strokes of Luck. While snorkelling in Cyprus a few years back, I found a gold wedding ring on the seabed about 15 feet down. I handed it in at the hotel reception. It turned out it had been lost weeks earlier by a couple celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary. Oh. The husband didn't know where he had lost it and had spent an emotional week searching. It was quite an emotional moment handing it back. How about that? Oh! It's an extraordinary stroke of luck. Uh, and the last one I think we can bring people today. We've got the, absolutely... With this backlog, we will get through. But, of course, we still encourage uh, people to uh, mm. respond to the subjects. And this is from Joe. It's about 
uh, an object you have in private hands. You can go to the, uh, I'll put on my Twitter feed, at Prodnos, and you can see all the subjects. They all remain open. They all remain fresh. The door doesn't close when we move on. But this was something ages ago I mentioned uh, with the moon rock, I think it was, Peps. Oh, yes, yes. That was on a table. There's so much knocking around, including uh, in a a landfill over in Ireland, isn't there? Anyway, uh, Joe gets in touch. And Joe... Uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to tread on any toes here, and I, but had Joe and I met another time, it wouldn't have been Wendy and Danny, it would have been Joe and Danny, because she uh, knows exactly where I emotionally live. Last September, I went off on one of my regular trips to Disney World in Florida, a place I love and just can't help going back. Me and you, me and you Joe, you know that. Usually it's just me and my husband, Rob. Oh, hang on. The story's taking a dark turn. Anyway, usually it's just me and my husband, Rob, on these trips, but this time we were bringing the whole family to show them the wonders of this place. My mum, Kath, although, although not totally disabled, finds it hard to walk long distances, so I recommended hiring a mobility scooter to help her get around the miles of walking in that sweltering hot sun. Mum had not used one of these before. I was given a short lesson at the rental place, and off we went, straight to the Magic Kingdom. We walked down Main Street in the Magic Kingdom with Mum whizzing along on her new scooter, up the drawbridge and into the castle, the great castle at the end of Main Street. And then we're all looking up to the other side into Fantasyland with the beautiful sight and the carousel. I know all of this, Joe. I know all of this, Joe. (laughs) And all the rides that awaited us. Mum decided to park the scooter and go on foot to look around this area of the park. We saw the dedicated scooter parking area and Mum headed towards it. It was at this point the scooter took off at some speed, and I mean some speed. There was a large obstacle in her way, and a collision was inevitable. I should add that the large obstacle in her way was the 100-foot-high centerpiece of Disney World, Cinderella's Castle. She crashed into it at quite a lick. Obviously, the family's first instinct was not to help, but to scream with laughter. We watched Mum now trying to reverse the scooter away from the wall, which she did, revealing that a large chunk of the castle was now hanging out where the impact had happened. You can see from the attached photo the chunk just hanging there. And my sister acted fast. She decided to swoop down and liberate this magical rubble from the wall and keep it as a souvenir. We now have it at home as our piece of the Disney magic to remember the trip by. And you've got to admit, it's better than a mass-produced stuffed Mickey. This was only one of our 17 days. The scooter hit a lot more things in our time there, but we didn't get any more artifacts to bring home. However, every time I hold that chunk of Cinderella's castle, I can still smell the churros and hear the small world theme in my head. Does anyone else own a piece of a famous building? How about that from Joe? <laughs> oh, mum, suddenly lost control. It's in Disney. You just thought security would have been down. And I was going to say. I would love a piece of it. A little uh, sweep and broom, you know. Quick, quick, well, tidy up. Why, don't have any damage at Disney. I know it, it's, it's why they closed Stonehenge, because people would chisel a little bit out. Mm. <laughs> they would, I know. Uh, but uh, a, a little piece of the... They should give you hammers and chisels as you approach it. We paid for it. It's what Walt would have wanted. Uh, we've, 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 uh, haven't achieved half the things we wanted. You got anything else you want to do there, Peps? No, 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 no. They can all stay, stay for the next one. I think so. Uh, they say we'll, we'll be back on uh, Saturday with the next one. But in the meantime, play the theme tune, uh, one, Phil. Two, three, four. Treehouse. 
climb up, come in, let's cozy down. Wave goodbye to that silly frown as we chase our cares away. In the treehouse, the fire's on, it's warm inside. We guarantee you'll be satisfied as we laugh the day away. In the treehouse, take it away, Danny! Always do, Wisby. Uh... My thanks to Louise Napoleon Pepper. There are 38 other shows, if you haven't heard any of them before. All of them achieve as much as this. Uh, thanks to Phil Wilding producing the show and Josh and everyone over there at, at Something Else for giving us the platform. But as always, it's chiefly yourselves. We'll see you next time, everyone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.